Ezekiel 35, anti-Semitism, obviously, you know, is prejudice against or hostility towards Jews. I saw an interesting statistic fact on TV tonight. Uh, just, it just happens to go with the study. I was watching Fox News on the way out. And um, 2008, uh, uh, not crimes, but uh, I guess, yeah, hate crimes and violence against Muslims was up 7.7%. Uh, but against Jews, and this is in America, it was up 65%. Uh, and it was blowing everybody's mind because you would think with all the... 9-11 and all the mosque issues and all that, that people would be really, you know, uh, antagonistic towards the Muslim. But historically and traditionally, it's the Jews that people hate. It's anti-Semitism that is prevalent in almost every culture. It can be manifested in many ways, ranging from personal expressions of hatred and discrimination against individual Jews to organized violent attacks by mobs or even the police or military attacks on entire Jewish communities. Extreme instances of anti-Semitism include the First Crusade of 1096, the expulsion of Jews from England in 1290, the Spanish Inquisition, the expulsion of Jews from Spain in 1492, the expulsion of Jews from Portugal in 1497, and of course the most infamous, the Holocaust under Hitler's Nazi Germany. I mean, can you imagine just an entire people group you just expelled from a nation? You know, like all of a sudden, it's like, hey, you, you know, you have to leave. We don't want you here anymore. You'd better get out. Why so much historic anti-Semitism? Well, it's satanic, quite honestly. In the revelation of Jesus Christ, the devil is portrayed as seeking to devour the Messiah who would be born through the nation of Israel. Before the birth of Jesus, the devil sought to destroy the line through which he must be born. Pharaoh's order to the midwives to kill all the male babies born to Jewish mothers is one example. After the birth of Jesus, the devil sought to kill him prematurely. Herod's order to kill all the male children two years old and under would be an example. After the resurrection of Jesus, the devil has been seeking to destroy every last Jew. It would thwart the prophecies that Jesus will return and all Israel will receive him as their Savior and that he will fulfill his promises biblical promises to Israel. High on the list of historic anti-Semites are the descendants of Jacob's brother Esau. They are the Edomites and are associated with Mount Seir. Their judgment is described in chapter 35 of Ezekiel. Any who embrace anti-Semitism should take notice because God establishes here that he identifies with his chosen people and uh, takes this very personally and he is going to defend his people uh, even while he's disciplining them. And so in verse 1, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Mount Seir, prophesy against it, and say to it, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, O Mount Seir, I am against you. I will stretch out my hand against you and make you most desolate. I shall lay your cities waste, and you shall be desolate. Then you shall know I am the Lord." Esau and Jacob were twins born to Isaac and Rebekah. You probably remember the story from Genesis. Esau was the first of the twins to be born. He was covered with red hair and was called Esau. Some scholars believe the word Esau means hairy. Esau became the ancestor of the people of Edom 
which means red. Before Esau's birth, the Lord told Rebekah that her older son would serve the younger son. Now, this is an unusual concept in ancient times uh, because birth order was regarded as uh, pretty sacred and the oldest son was the heir of the father's wealth and power and authority. It was an automatic situation. Esau was born first, but when his twin brother Jacob was being born, Jacob's hand was holding on to Esau's heel, taken as a sign that Jacob wanted to be born first. Later in life, Jacob continued to show that he wanted the birthright. One day, Esau returned from an unsuccessful hunting trip and was famished. He saw that Jacob had been cooking food and he asked for a serving. Jacob asked him if he would be willing to sell his rights as the firstborn son in exchange for that bowl of soup. And Esau agreed. Now, we don't know if this was a sincere agreement or just something flippant. Uh, Burned in my mind is the Donut Man song, Esau Saw the Soup. How many of you remember the Donut Man? Esau saw the soup. Esau saw the soup. Jacob made a meal and he thought he had a deal when Esau saw the soup. And uh, so, you know, just when you have kids, you know, certain things just set you off. But Donut Man. Jacob sought to make good on the deal, though, and with his mother's help, he tricked his aging uh, father into giving Jacob the blessing that traditionally would have been reserved for the firstborn. After Jacob got the blessing from his father, Esau said, I'm going to kill you. Uh, And so Jacob, uh, his mom arranged for him to live with her relatives in Haran. Jacob lived there about 20 years working for Uncle Laban. When Jacob returned home, his brother Esau had a wealth and 400-man army. He determined in his heart to forgive Jacob. Esau went on to marry Hittite women, against his parents' wishes. He also married two Ishmaelite women. One of them was Mahalahath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son. After Isaac died, Esau took his wives and his children and his servants and his cattle, and he moved away from his brother to Mount Seir. In the New Testament passage of Hebrews 12:16, Esau is described as immoral. Paul in Romans chapter 9 indicates that God had chosen Jacob to be the heir to the promises that he had made to his grandfather, Abraham. Now, while we're there, this is kind of off of our subject, but uh, I'm going to talk about it anyway. Uh, The Romans passage is often used out of context to say that in God's election to personal salvation, he chooses some while overlooking others. It's that famous passage that says, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. And, And certain people come and they say, well, there you go. You know, God chooses some to salvation he loves them, but others he passes over. Or, or they go so far as to say he actually reprobates them to hell. And that's the sovereign choice of God. Nothing can be done about it. God in eternity past chose you to salvation and you to damnation. And that's just the way it is. And, and Romans 9 is a really important passage for that theology. However, that's not at all what the passage is teaching. In Romans 9, Paul is explaining to Jews that God has set aside Israel for a time in order to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. That's his whole argument. Uh, Even though Israel is God's firstborn, his chosen nation, as it were, he was setting them aside temporarily and giving his blessing to the Gentiles, the secondborn. Now, you and I don't really 
we can't enter into the culture of this so much, but if you're a Jew and you're listening to the argument of Paul the Apostle in and through the book of Romans, you finally jump up and say, what about the Jews? How can God set us aside? Didn't He make all these promises to us? Where do we find that in Scripture? And Paul says, well, I'm glad you asked. Because in your own Scripture, there is a case, a, a very prominent case, in which God set aside the firstborn and gave the blessing to the secondborn, and it's in the story of Jacob and Esau. And so Paul is able to have a biblical example of what he's talking about. And so you and I approach this and we say, oh yeah, we see that. God was dealing with the Jews, and Jesus came and offered the kingdom to the Jews. They rejected him. And so you get to the end of the book of Acts, and Paul says, okie dokie, now the gospel is going to go out to the Gentiles. And uh, you guys are going to be on the back burner for a while until the church is full and the Lord raptures the church. Then the great tribulation will kick in and God will start to deal with the Jews again, his firstborn. And so when you get to Romans 9 and you see Jacob and Esau, it is not about the doctrine of personal salvation. It is an illustration of what God is doing in history between Jews and Gentiles. Uh, so anyway, I, I hope that's clear uh, and uh, just love talking about that stuff because I hate to see people get off track uh, and start to impugn the character of God. And uh, uh, you, I'm so glad the Bible does not teach that God in eternity past passed over people who can never be saved because he hasn't already elected them. Uh, I know practically people say, well, we don't know who those people are so we share the gospel anyway but you know if a person doesn't get saved well then God chose them for damnation uh, I I don't think so I don't think so not because I don't want to believe that but because that's not what the Bible teaches and when you look at a passage like Romans 9 they say hey here it is this is it and you say well no that's not it at all you com- you completely misread this because you don't understand the place of Israel in fact I would go so far in some cases to say as if that it's an anti-Semitic viewpoint because it takes Israel out of the picture. It's not actively anti-Semitic. It, it's not a hatred of the Jews. It's just an ignorance of the Jews. Like, well, who cares about the Jews? God's not dealing with them anymore. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he is. Okay, back to our text. All that was just a bonus. Uh, Esau's descendants practiced a constant animosity against Jacob's descendants. For that... God would utterly and totally wipe them out. Now, the nation of Esau's descendants is sometimes referred to as Esau or Idumea or Mount Seir. All of these names are interchangeable, referring to the same nation, Edom, the Edomites. Uh, Edom was located to the southeast of Judah. It's in a rugged mountainous region, which is now the southwestern part of Jordan. Its most well-known city, Petra. Throughout ancient history, the Edomites manifested their hatred against the Hebrews as shown by, for example, they refused Moses and the children of Israel permission to pass through Edomite territory during the Exodus, forcing them to take a much longer route. God would deal with them by destroying them as an identifiable people. And so we pick it up now in verse 5. Because you have had ancient hatred and have shed the blood of the children of Israel by the power of the sword at the time of their calamity, when their iniquity came to an end. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord God, I will prepare you for blood, and blood shall pursue you. Since you have not hated blood, in other words, they favored violence, 
Therefore, blood shall pursue you. Thus, I will make Mount Seir most desolate, cut off from it the one who leaves and the one who returns. And I will fill its mountains with the slain on your hills and in your valleys and in all your ravines. Those who are slain by the sword shall fall. I will make you perpetually desolate and your city shall be uninhabited. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. Uh, there's a play on words in here that I don't really get or we don't get because we don't know the original language. It's a play on the word blood in this passage. Edom means red, so red or Edom who have not hated the shedding of blood would themselves be pursued by blood. And so it's, it's something that the Jews would pick up on uh, this play on words. The prophecy here is that I will make you perpetually desolate. Scholars and historians say there are no Edomites today. So I, I, I hope none of you are, are you know, on Ancestry.com looking for your Edomite heritage uh, because uh, this is what the scholars say. One author writes, and I'm reading now, history records that the Edomites were ravaged by the Babylonian armies in the early 6th century B.C. and that near the end of the 6th century B.C. the Nabataeans attacked the Edomites, driving them from their mountain fortress of Mount Seir into the Negev desert to the west. The ancient prophecies against Edom were completely fulfilled and there is no need to look for those prophecies to be fulfilled again today, especially since the Edomites no longer exist as an identifiable nation or ethnic group. And so the question is, what became of them? Jewish historian Josephus, writing of the Jewish conquests in the second century B.C., writes the following, and again I'm reading, John Hyrcanus took uh, Dora and Marissa, cities of Idumea, and subdued all the Idumeans, all the Edomites. He permitted them to stay in that country if they would circumcise their genitals and make use of the laws of the Jews. And they were so desirous of living in their country that they submitted to the use of circumcision and the rest of the Jewish ways of living, at which time therefore this befell them that they were hereafter no other than Jews. And so they were absorbed into Judaism uh, into the Jewish uh, lineage and there are no Edomites in the same way there are Israelites today, identifiable Jewish people. There's another part of the prophecy here though as well. In Ezekiel 35, 9 it says, I will make you perpetually desolate and your cities shall be uninhabited. Now, uh, ordinarily I wouldn't think much of that, but it kind of indicates that the cities would continue to exist although they would be uninhabited. Uh, it's interesting that, at least in one case, this is literally true. Petra, the city I referenced earlier, this famous rock city, was discovered in 1812 by a Swiss explorer named Johann Ludwig Burkhardt. A tourism website boasts of it saying this, quote, It is without doubt Jordan's most valuable treasure and greatest tourist attraction. And so though there are no Edomites though they have been destroyed as God said they would, there are their cities and their cities are quite well preserved and they are not only well preserved, Petra is the, is the only reason people go to Jordan, I can tell, you know, unless you're a, a political person or a terrorist. Uh, you, you know, Jordan is kind of, you'd go there to see Petra. Many Bible scholars and students of prophecy speculate that Petra will be the place where the believing remnant of Jews will flee midway through the Great Tribulation 
when the Antichrist declares himself to be God and begins to persecute them. It seems to fit the general geography of their flight insofar as it is described. Jesus talked about this uh, in, this, uh, in his Olivet Discourse. Uh, he said, you know, there's going to be a time when the abomination of desolation happens, and that's a reference to Daniel. It's a reference to the Antichrist revealing himself. He'll be on the earth for three and a half years, having made a peace treaty with Israel, and then he'll reveal himself saying, I'm, you know, I'm God, and you're going to worship me, and I'm going to kill all the Jews. And, and then the Jews have to flee out into the wilderness. You read about it as well in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And so it's right there at the midpoint of the tribulation. And there are scholars who believe that Petra is this wilderness area where the Jews will hole up. Lambert Dolphin, which is a real guy, by the way. How many of you know who Lambert Dolphin is? He's a great Bible commentator. Look him up online. Uh, and uh, it, he's got the coolest name in the world, you know, other than Steve McQueen, maybe. But anyway, Lambert Dolphin uh, writes this. He's a real solid guy. Jesus does not tell the residents of Tel Aviv or Haifa to flee. The greatest danger is in Jerusalem, and the peril is so great that the true believers must leave town immediately. The number fleeing will certainly number thousands, perhaps several tens of thousands. They are called to flee to the mountains, and since Jerusalem is already in the mountains of Judea, the flight will evidently be down to Jericho, then across into Jordan. Most Bible scholars believe this godly remnant will find refuge in the ancient rock-hewn cliff city of Petra, or at least in the land of Eden in southern Jordan. They will survive protected by God for three and a half years. It's not just Petra that protects them. God divinely protects them. But it's kind of interesting to see this come full circle at the end of the tribulation where the Edomites had uh, persecuted God's people and so God destroys them, preserves their cities and then the Jews, God's people, are protected in those cities. And so it's a sort of a, a poetic justice. Uh, the Edomites get what they deserve because they refuse to repent. This all makes sense. And we'll see from our vantage point in heaven, having been resurrected or raptured uh, at least three and a half years prior. So right now we're, we can't say for sure that Petra is where the Jews are going to go, but uh, we'll be in heaven at the time. Uh, and uh, you know whether we're actually going to be watching events on the earth or not, I don't know. I'd like to think so, you know, but uh, we might be busy doing other stuff like worshiping the Lord and hanging out in our mansions and brewing espresso in our new mansions and, you know, discovering new ways of brewing coffee and all, you know, the things that really matter. Uh, but uh, anyway, figuring out how to clean blood off your nose and stuff like that. No, I'm just kidding now. Just wanted to gross you out again. But uh, anyway, uh, this is what's going to be happening. So verse 10, because you have said these two nations and these two countries shall be mine and we will possess them, although the Lord was there. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord God, I will do according to your anger and according to the envy which you showed in your hatred against them, and I will make myself known among them when I judge you. And so here we find out that not only did the Edomites constantly fight against Israel or aid her enemies, they thought by aiding the Babylonians that the two countries, which is a reference to the split in Israel, Israel to the north and Judah to the south, when the nation of Israel split into two separate nations. Uh, the Edomites thought, well, once the Babylonians ravage the land, we'll step in and we'll take over that territory. Uh, it, it'll be theirs to move into and possess. 
God, of course, would not let that happen because His unconditional promises to the Jews that they would possess the land must stand. And so God defended that land against the Edomites. And in fact, the Babylonians began to destroy them and then other peoples after them until they were wiped out uh, or absorbed into Judaism. And so verse 12, Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have heard all your blasphemies which you have spoken against the mountains of Israel, saying, They are desolate. They are given to us to consume. Thus with your mouth you have boasted against me and multiplied your words against me. I have heard them. Uh, God considers any anti-Semitism as if it were directed at Him. Israel is the apple of His eye. They are His own peculiar people. And He takes notice of those who are against her. Verse 14, Thus says the Lord God, The whole earth will rejoice when I make you desolate. As you rejoiced because the inheritance of the house of Israel was desolate, so I will do to you. You shall be desolate, O Mount Seir, as well as all of Eden, all of it. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. Petra exists. It's a key tourist attraction. The Edomites who once inhabited it do not. Most Bible prophecy has already been literally fulfilled. Uh, every now and then I run across this statistic or I remember it uh, and it, it blows my mind. Uh, of course, these are all estimates based on how you read the Scripture, but one estimate is that there are a total of uh, uh, 2,500 prophecies in the Bible. There may be more, there may be a few less. Uh, it, it, as I said, it depends on your reading, but... Let's say there's 2,500 conservatively prophe uh, prophecies in the Bible. 2,000 of them have been literally fulfilled. They're, they're done. They're in the books. It's happened. Like what we're looking at tonight with God talking about what He would do to the Edomites and preserve their city and all of that kind of thing. So uh, 2,000 out of 2,500 prophecies have already been fulfilled. Uh, the odds for all these prophecies having been fulfilled by chance without error is less than 1 in 10 to the 2,000th power. That's a 1 with 2,000 zeros written after it. It's a number I can't fathom. It's like the, it's like the, the national debt. But uh, No, I'm just, just kidding. It's... Uh, I got a million of them. But anyway, it's a big number. It's, it basically, it's impossible. It's, it's not possible. It's not possible for there to have been, by chance, or by the writing of men who, you know, uh, just put this stuff together, uh, all of those prophecies having been fulfilled. And it also, I mean, I'm guessing, just guessing here, but I'm thinking the rest of them, the 500 that are left, they're going to be fulfilled. What do you think, right? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's going to happen. Uh, and so we're on, always on good, solid ground uh, when we're reading the Bible. And one of the great proofs of the Bible really is fulfilled prophecy, the fact that God says what He's going to do, and He not only is going to do it, but He's done it. He's done it in absolute detail. And, and so I, you know, I would leave people with this question, how much Bible prophecy needs to be fulfilled before a person would understand that the Bible is indeed the Word of God? Uh, it, you know, it, that's not the issue, really. The issue is the heart. 
And so we need to always be asking God to uh, remove the blinders from folks, to open their heart so that they would receive this seed of the gospel and be saved. Amen? Amen. All right, praise the Lord. Ezekiel.